Thank you, Pastor Abraham and Taufal, for the opportunity this morning. Um, so we're talking this month about sons and servants. And I saw a question in an online forum recently, where, which went something like, what is the one thing that your father taught you that has stayed with you your whole life? And I thought, what an interesting question. Um, because my initial response to this was there was lots of things my dad used to say. Um, my dad was from an Irish Catholic background, so family pride was really important. So we used to get lectured on a lot of different things uh, about our behavior and what was acceptable and what was not. Um, so my dad, you know, it's really hard to pick just one thing. But um, when I was a teenager, um, my dad was a taxi driver. And he would finish his shift, and then he would come home, and he would sit in the kitchen, pour a beer, light his pipe, and then he would call me to come to the kitchen. And then he would talk to me about life and, and advise me on many different topics. Um, but if I had to pick one thing that stayed with me all my life, it's this. My dad told me, if you tell somebody that you're going to do something, you better do it. Amen? And that stayed with me my whole life, to the point where, you know, my wife can ask me to do something, and if I haven't done it yet, she'll remind me, and I'll be like, it's still in here. I can't forget it, <laughs> because I haven't done it yet. I have to do it. So it's a responsibility, and, and it's accountability. Um, with those simple words, my dad taught me that it matters what you say and who you say it to. It matters what you do and what you forget to do. Why? Because it impacts other people. Um, so something I only thought of when I got to church this morning was to ask my wife um, something that, you know, what's the most, most important thing her dad said to her? You know, they always say, prepare, 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 but I just thought of that this morning. So I asked her just before, and, um, and she said to me that uh, <laughs> the biggest thing her dad ever said to her <laughs> was that she was the light at the end of the tunnel. Out of all her brothers and sisters, she's the one that always helps them out and helps her parents. And yeah, so uh, but in terms of my dad, I know what my wife would say about my dad um, because he always calls her super mom and super woman, <laughs> maybe because she named one of the kids after him. But, <laughs> but uh, as for my father in law, when I proposed to my wife. I had to go and visit her parents and talk with them about it. And I remember very clearly the advice that my father-in-law gave us. Um, when I met my wife, I was a single parent. And uh, so my father-in-law said to us that no matter what happened in our relationship or how it worked out, the most important thing was that we looked after that boy. That's what he told us. And I was really touched just by you know, the acceptance of not only, not only myself, but my child into the family um, to the extent that they looked at the well-being of my son over his concern for my wife and me. Um, and such is the heart of a father. Amen? Um, another thing I recall about my wife's family was whenever we would have a, a family talk. Um, and this was a new thing to me, uh, where we, we all went around the room and everybody got to say, whatever they thought, and, and they could say whatever they wanted. There was no holds barred. You could say whatever you thought about the topic, and 
everybody had a voice. But then after everybody had had their say, then dad speaks, right? And dad says, okay, I heard what everybody said, and now this is what I've decided is going to happen, right? And later on, when somebody tried to change the plan, Margaret's older brother said, no, you heard what dad said. This is what we're doing. (laughs) Such is the heart of a son. Amen. And today we're talking about sons and servants, sons and daughters of the house. So that last part of the story I just told you is just one illustration of what it means to be a son. Somebody who knows his father's business and carries it out. Did he agree with what dad had decided? I don't know. But it didn't matter. He knew what the decision was, and he stuck by it because of his relationship with his father. And leadership experts will tell you that to be a good leader, you don't always have to be right. It doesn't matter if you're always right. It matters if you're clear. And the decision was clear. My brother-in-law was clear on the decision, and he owned the decision, and he became an enforcer of it. This is what the son does. He enforces his father's will. And this is similar to my own journey. Shortly after I became a Christian, I left my parents' home. I moved from a small town in the South Island of New Zealand up to Wellington in the North Island to start my first job. And being on my own and not knowing anyone, it gave me a lot of time to just either read the word or listen to music. Um, when I became a Christian, I made the decision. Nobody told me this, but I made a decision that I was only going to listen to Christian music. Um, I listened to a lot of you know, rock bands and stuff, but they were all Christian ones. Um, and so those things were my, my influences. Um, I never got caught up in the party scene, and because I was an introvert, I'd never stayed for drinks after work or any of that kind of carry-on. And even during my lunch break, I had my head in my Bible. Um, So my favorite parts of the Bible to read were through 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and 1 and 2 Chronicles. I enjoyed reading those stories about the rise and fall of Saul, the rise and fall and rise of David, and the kings who came after him. And I was particularly interested in the interactions between David and Saul and the choices David made not to lay a hand on Saul. And the other thing that gripped me were the stories of David's mighty men. Um, And I want to read you a little bit about them from 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23, if you've got your Bible, and starting at verse 8. So these are the names of David's mighty warriors. Uh, Joshib Bashebeth, a Kemenite was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Amazing. Next to him was Eliza, son of Dodai the Ahohite. As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastamim for battle. Then the Israelites retreated. But Eliza stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eliza, but only to strip the dead, because he killed them all. <laughs> Next to him was Shammah, son of Agi the Hararite. When the Philistines banded together at a place that was full of lentils, Israelites' troops fled from them. 
But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. During harvest time, three of the thirty chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while the band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. So presumably they had to break back through the lines again. Um, but David refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. Abishai, the brother of Joab, son of Zeruiah, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed. And so he became as famous as the three. Was he not held in greater honor than the three? He became their commander, even though he was not included among them. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. And he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. He, too, was as famous as the three mighty warriors. He was held in greater honor than any of the thirty, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. And then it goes on to name all the rest of these mighty men. We won't read all those names. But when I'm reading this at the age of 18, I took note of how dedicated these men were to David. David was in charge, but these guys, they were doing all these things in, in service to David. They were, but they were not his servants. They joined him of their own free will, and they became his enforcers. So at that time, I had joined a little church in an unlikely place called Cannons Creek, Porirua. <laughs> And uh, my pastor's name was Gary. And Gary didn't think like other pastors I had known. When Gary discovered that there were a lot of creative people in the church, he allowed them to create presentations of the gospel using various creative means. And then he used them to amplify his sermon. Amen? So Gary's attitude to ministry created a lot of opportunities for things to get involved in. Um, when Gary got involved with a cross-denominational men's event called Promise Keepers, he dragged all of us along with him. And we ended up serving in the, in the tech team and things for that, um, and doing all sorts of stuff. Gary gave people opportunities to be involved with what he was doing. Now just remember, when I first came to the church, I was 18, and I had been bullied growing up. I had exactly zero confidence I was incapable of making decisions other than the one I made to leave home. And so I arrived in the big wide world with very little street smarts to handle it. 
And so the beauty of what Gary did by allowing us to be involved was that it built confidence. He allowed us to make mistakes. And when we made mistakes, it built character and we gained wisdom. He made me feel like one of David's mighty men. And it's something I'm incredibly grateful for. For me, this is what it means to be a son of the house. You get involved not because of duty or obligation, but out of gratitude. Gratitude firstly to God, but also to the leaders who gave you their support to be where you are today. You're not doing stuff for the church. You are the church. This, this is the difference between law and grace. So I'm grateful for the opportunities I've had to serve in the church and in support of my pastor. And that's why when we moved to Brisbane, I immediately started looking for a church to go to. Because when you're a son of the house, you can't just sit on the side. Amen? So one of the first things I noticed when I moved to Brisbane, I was like Googling churches here, there, everywhere. And um, I saw lots of people, lots of testimonies on these websites saying, God called me and my wife to start a church. Now, I knew that that was not my calling. I knew I wanted to come and support an existing church um, and be one of David's mighty men, you know, and be in this church supporting my leaders. So part of my reason for that view is that I'm not saying that these people who said, you know, we're starting a church, I'm not saying that wasn't God's will for them. But I am a little bit careful myself because I feel like um, part of my reason for wanting to be serving is that I feel like if, you, if you're just seeking power instead of seeking to serve, you've kind of missed the point of, of leadership. Um, I wish a few more politicians would get that one. <laughs> uh. <laughs> so, yeah, and and the the other scripture that I always um, that I always live by is one Corinthians six nineteen to twenty, which where Paul said, "Your life is not your own; you were bought at a price." So we honor God with our service, Amen. And David's men understood this. Why did they understand it? They understood it because David understood it. Our pastor Abraham spoke about David last week and how he served his father, taking care of the sheep, how he went to face Goliath knowing that God was on his side. David, as you also may remember, had served under King Saul at the height of his madness. I really can't think of a better example of love your enemy or a spirit of sonship than David's attitude to Saul. You can read all about it. 1 Samuel 18, you can read an amazing story where Saul is jealous of David and an evil spirit overcomes him and he throws a spear at David and tries to pin him to the wall. And it says, but David eluded him twice. The thing that most people miss about this interaction is that David's reaction was completely unnatural. All he did was dodge the spear. And since we know he had to dodge it twice, it means that he didn't attempt to stop Saul. Any other person in this world that I know would have done what? Pick up the spear and throw it back. 
This is what the world tells us. If somebody attacks you, you get them back. Defend yourself. You now got a valid license to kill. And you can easily master the art of returning thrown spears. If you do it often enough and for long enough, you can get quite good at it. And in 20 years' time, you could be the best spear thrower in the land. <laughs> and also insane, just like Saul. Amen? That's where that gets you. But no, David had the spirit of a son. He repeatedly said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. If we read further, as I did in my lunch break all those years ago, we learn that David repeatedly refused to harm Saul, even when given multiple opportunities. And when David fled the kingdom for his life, he didn't do what many Christians do today and take half the church with them. No, he left by himself. He made the decision to leave by himself. And it was after that that men began to seek him out of their own free will because they wanted to follow him. And what did they follow him into? Wars, fights, battles, skirmishes, set-tos, and rumbles. There's nothing like a good war to separate the men from the boys. Pastor Taufal talked about spiritual warfare this morning and, and you know, the spirit of witchcraft and things like that. Um, so we're in a spiritual battle. And we didn't enlist. We were all drafted. We're in it whether we want to be or not. So knowing who you are as a son or a daughter of the house is never more important than it is when the enemy attacks us or people we know. Um, in terms of this, I, I heard a quote once from a book uh, called Into the Storm, A Study in Command. And it was written by a retired U.S. general called Fred Franks. Um, Fred Franks had served as a commander in Vietnam, and he stepped on a landmine, which blew his leg off. And in 1991, when the Gulf War came around, he petitioned the government to be allowed to serve as one of the few disabled commanders in U.S. military history. And so he was involved in Operation Desert Storm, which I think we've all heard of. Um, and I want you to like just take note of this and think about the comparisons with spiritual warfare. Fred Frank said this, In war, there's no such thing as a fair fight. A hundred to nothing is about the right score, and you do everything you can to make the fight as unfair as possible, as quickly as possible, or as rapidly as possible. Why? Because of the stakes. It's life or death. And then he said this, So build strong teams. In actual combat conditions, soldiers fight for their friends. Their friends. Not those in power. Not the general. He didn't say do it for Anastasia Palaszczuk. He didn't say do it for Scott Morrison. He said soldiers fight for their friends. And that's why David's men were loyal to him. Because he didn't abuse power like Saul did. He had the spirit of a son. So, with all this in mind, we should fully expect that our brothers and sisters in the church should support us. Again, because of the stakes. 
we're not just dealing with life and death like they were on those battlefields. We're dealing with eternal life and eternal death. So I fully expect that if we have the spirit of sonship, then we will take that seriously and treat each other accordingly. Now, I fully realize that's not a small thing to ask because there's high stakes involved for high reward. It involves trust. It involves risk. It involves making ourselves vulnerable, which is exactly the time when people will usually hurt you. Now, in David's case, Saul was motivated by an evil spirit, which we know because the Bible tells us. But in the case of other people in church, we don't know anybody's motives. Only God knows. I was astounded by the story that um, Kathleen shared a couple of weeks ago about the way she was treated in another church, being accused of having a spirit of this and that. And I was very sorry to hear that that happened to you, Kathleen, by the way, and appalled that people would have the audacity to think they know what's going on in somebody else's head. It reminded me, um, reminded me of a song I used to listen to, actually. It's called, How Do You Know When I Don't Know Myself? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, I mean, I also related to, you know, you mentioned being in a place of darkness at a point in your life, and Miracle said the same thing in the following week, and I relate to that too, um, which is interesting that there's a number of us that relate to that. Maybe it says something about the people we're going to reach. Yeah. Yeah. Hallelujah. Because we understand, right? We get it. Um but in terms of you know what you experienced, Galatians 5 warns us against that kind of thing. It says, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So regardless of what we think we see, we don't know the motives of other people. We don't read minds. Paul even went so far as to say it doesn't matter. In Philippians 1.18, he says, what does it matter? The important thing is that whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So Paul wasn't even concerned about worrying about other people's motives. John 15.5 tells us, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. I just want to mention one more thing that I learned from my time serving under Gary. And this is, again, the attitude of a son but it's a wrong kind of attitude. Now, I'm talking about myself right now. I used to notice over time that there were certain people who would mess up over and over again, and then they would come back and, and say sorry and repent. And Gary never hesitated to forgive them. And, but I developed an attitude like, you know, that older son in the prodigal son story? You know that older son, the one who was like, I've been here the whole time serving and I didn't mess up and now you want to roll out the red carpet for them. <laughs> yeah, so I complained to God about this. And God spoke to me clearly and he basically said, what business is it of yours? And he said, when that person dies and they stand before me, they won't have any excuse. Because I can point to the pastor and say, that man gave you so many chances, right? And I never, I've never had that attitude since then. So the fact of the matter is, God's mercies are new every morning. Amen. Every day above ground is a good one. The Lord is patient, 
unwilling that any should perish. That's in 2 Peter 3 verse 9. Once you die, then there's no more chances. So, you know, all those people who are so quick to want euthanasia or the ones that commit suicide. Do you know that suicide is like a permanent solution to a temporary problem? What happens after that? Not peace. My brother sent me a book called A Land Unknown by B.W. Melvin. It's an amazing story uh, about a man who had one of those near-death experiences where he saw hell. Uh, his book is very descriptive, and he has scripture to back up everything he describes that he saw. It's a very sobering read. Um, hell is to be avoided at all costs. Amen. But if you're still here, then it's evidence of God's mercy towards you and me. So now's the time for us to get it right while we still can. Now's the time to live as sons and daughters and brothers and sisters, not devouring each other like it says in Galatians, but serving each other, not because we are servants, but because we are the sons and daughters of the house. Amen.